The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you bow in prayer with me this morning? Father, um, we, we love you. We love your word. We love the fact that um, there is a mourning, there is a longing um, to be gathered as a whole once again. And we are very thankful for um, this morning where there is a foretaste of that, where uh, the governing authorities have um, granted permission for phase one to be gathered within groups of 25 or less, and that that we are able to do that. We have households to gather, this church building, and still be connected on on a platform where we can see one another's faces, where we can be uh, chiefly as the purpose, you know, together in the study of God's word and in prayer. And and we recognize, God, that this is not a substitute, um, but we are thankful for it. And, And we do pray together collectively that steady movement, steady progress would be made uh, towards, uh, towards that day, that very um, that day marked with great celebration uh, to come together as, as you've designed the body to be, uh, and that is joined, knitted together in the love of Christ. And so, Father, as we look to that day, we also look now that you would help us uh, give our, our, our hearts attention, our minds being focused and, and drawn to to hear from you, God, to, to, to be united in the study of God's word, to hear what it is you have prepared for your bride this morning, that we would share it collectively, that it would be imparted in such a way that, uh, that there is um, progress, that there is movement forward in knitting us together in the love of Christ. Even as we sang earlier, Father, we need you. And those are not only words there are words that are, uh, I, I, I believe, joined with our heart's affections, God. Um, our heart cry to you that we do need you. So would you please, we ask, as a people who are undeserving, but who know and uh, whom they believe, that you are a generous God, that you are a loving God, and that you bless your people. So I pray that we would have humble hearts, soft, receptive hearts, to encounter you this morning. We seek you, God. Please make yourself known, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, the title of this morning's message, this morning's sermon is Betrayal Meets Faithfulness. Betrayal Meets Faithfulness. The setting, if you recall, from last week's teaching by Nathan, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, Jesus, in agony over what awaits him, is is praying to the Father, asking the Father if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he's receiving essentially no help from his heavy-eyed disciples, whom Jesus finds sleeping every time he seeks their support. Jesus repeats this prayer. How many times? Three times. Three times repeats this prayer. And after the third time, he awakens his his sleeping disciples to announce that the hour, you know, the very hour he has been praying to pass from him has now come. Perhaps, Perhaps even pointing, pointing to Judas, approaching, as he says, glancing back to verse 42, See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, 
and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The hour of betrayal has come. It did not pass. The hour that that opens wide the, the floodgates of the forces of evil, you know, the power of darkness to unleash a full force assault on Christ has come. Betrayed into the hands of sinners to be sentenced to death and that by crucifixion. The betrayer has come to betray him who is faithful. Betrayal meets faithfulness. And there are three things I aim to to, to focus our attention on this morning in our consideration of this passage. Three, Three morsels from God's word to chew on today and into the week ahead. Number one, the sting of betrayal. The sting of betrayal. Number two, Christ's holy conduct upheld in the face of betrayal. And number three, budding marks of one seeking after God by following Christ. Budding marks of one seeking after God by following Christ. Now, before we proceed onto the first of these three morsels from God's Word today, I, I believe it would be helpful to obtain a clear definition of what it means to betray. Of the definition searched, I found the following to most succinctly describe betrayal. Violation of trust. Violation of trust by either fraud, deceiving one for selfish gain, or or by unfaithfulness in which in which entrusted secrets or, or treasures are disclosed or, or squandered for selfish gain. Now, if I were to pose the question, have you ever been betrayed? Undoubtedly, every one of us, given enough time, could share a betrayal you've experienced before. You know, perhaps that that kid at school who told you if you would just let him have your pudding snack, that he won't tell anyone that you have a crush on so-and-so. And then to come find and then and then to come to find out that after giving them your pudding snack, like keep that secret, that it was already known. He already let it be known, or he only held that secret for a day's worth before broadcasting it. Possibly you've You've been betrayed by that website you trusted. You know, the the vacation rental advertisement for an amazing deal. Or that that ad for sold-out concert tickets that could be yours, you know? Something of, of that nature. You trusted the site. You put forth sensitive information to only find out soon later that you were deceived. Your trust in them was violated for their gain and your loss. And headache and ah, right? How dare they do that? How dare they? Betrayal, violation of trust. Whether, whether these examples or others, you know, we've experienced this before. That is indeed a betrayal. But there is a betrayal. There is a betrayal that bears a much stronger state. One in which, when that question is posed, there is no effort needed to to put forth to think of an example. On the contrary, there is effort needed to be put forth not to to become quickly agitated by memory of it. There is that such a betrayal, the hurt of which penetrates far deeper than its counterpart. This is a type 
of betrayal our Lord experiences here in the passage this morning. The sting of betrayal by one who brought it with a kiss. Biting into our first morsel of God's word, the sting of betrayal. Let's look at, again, verses 43 through 46. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Judas betrays Jesus to his face. To his face. And not only to his face, but with a, with a gesture of, of friendship, relationship, endearment. While all along, his heart was inclined to harm him for personal gain. And before we expound on that some more, before we expound on that some more, I want you to note with me that Judas, verse 44, the betrayer, had given them a sign. Them who? Them, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders along with the the band of soldiers, the the crowd that they brought along to seize Jesus. Judas provided a sign to them saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Why was it necessary for him to do that? Why was it necessary for him to do that? I mean, doesn't Jesus perpetually have this halo canopy about him, this angelic glowing essence about him all the time. You know, isn't he the one with the long flowing hair, brown hair and, and you know, full beard resembling, resembling the likes of a surfer hippie that whom you could immediately spot in a crowd? Right? <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently not. In fact, in fact, Isaiah 53, 2 tells us that like a root, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Huh. Now, I I love a daily dose of fresh, raw ginger, ginger root in the morning. I do. I look forward to it. After all coffee and breakfast has been consumed, I bite into a chunk of raw ginger and pow! I mean, it's bursting with life and vigor with every chew until I swallow it. There is this this spicy purging freshness in my mouth every time that I've come to thoroughly enjoy. It has... You see, it has this like cleansing effect on your palate. That's why it, it, that's why it's served with sushi, so that as you move through eating the variety of sushi that you are enjoying, you can cleanse your palate between each bite to maximize the variety of flavors you're enjoying, you're experiencing. It is an amazing food, but it is like all other roots, not a blooming flower that grasps your eye's attention. It's visibly unappealing. Powerful substance and how, but no outward beauty or desirable form. This is what Isaiah uses as a way to describe the Messiah. I find that amazing. That Jesus had no physical form that was extraordinary. He held no outward appearance that made him sharply distinguished in a crowd. 
No, no glowing essence that, that shone brighter than that of the full moon of Passover. On this very night in the passage, right? It's Passover night. There is a full moon. Granted, there was poor lighting in that it was the middle of the night. It would have been difficult to see exactly which one Jesus was. John's gospel says that they, uh, that they brought along with the weapons torches and lanterns to further illuminate the moon at night. But, nevertheless, Scripture tells us plainly that it wasn't Jesus' outside form that drew people to him. Rather, it was that which emanated from within him. God himself looks upon the heart. God looks upon the heart and not the outward appearance. And right on par with that, God among us, Emmanuel, the incarnate Christ, the Son of God, reflected the glory of the Father by the inner man. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness, yes, all the fullness, without limitation, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pleased to dwell. Uninhibited of fullness in him. Not outward form, but in him. That transcending glory of Christ from within, right? And same as it is for his followers. Same as it is for us. You see, the, the attractiveness of Christianity is not his people's apparel or outward glory. It's rather the transcendent inward glory of the life of Christ in them made manifest through, what do you think? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit. You tracking? Love, joy, peace, Kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is these attributes of Christ that drew people to him when he walked this earth. And it still draws people to him now when it is exhibited in his church in his followers. It's also what God looks upon. It's the, it's the essence that flows from the inner man, our true self. Not the camouflage we, we put on display, but our, our true nature, being sanctified by the powerful working of the Spirit of God, effectively applying the Word of God to our hearts. That, that's changing us. That's what's being transformed is, is that inner nature, and that's what is shining forth and attractive to a world who doesn't get it anywhere else, the fruit of the Spirit. It is this inner man that has been born again for all the true believers, and it grows to maturity as we seek after God by following Christ. And this inner man of Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God was, was pleased to dwell, and thereby reflecting the glory of the Father, not by his outward appearance, but by the transcendent nature of his inner man, it's here. It's here at the heart level where Jesus was stung, I believe, fiercely by this betrayal. Why do I say that? Listen. Jesus invested time with Judas, three years of time and energy into training Judas as a disciple from the moment he called him along with the other 12. Invested time and energy, day after day, time and energy invested into training him along with the other 11. Three years together. They had meals together, right? Jesus regularly broke bread with Judas over the span of his three years of ministry. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't 
necessarily believe every single meal, but definitely they're doing ministry together, meals together on a regular basis. That's a lot of meals shared, a lot of conversations had around the breaking of bread. Judas was there the whole time. Judas, or excuse me, Jesus gave, entrusted, you could say, entrusted Judas with power and authority to heal the sick and raise the dead. Like, did you hear what that, was, what that just said? To raise the dead. That's not just an insert to have it look fuller. I believe the disciples were given the power and authority to do that very thing. And Judas was one of them. When Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of heaven to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Bible provides no information that would lead us to believe that Judas was the exception amongst the other disciples. No. He was entrusted with the same power and authority that all 12 were given by Jesus. What a gift. What a gift. What a treasure of Jesus to entrust to others. Furthermore, Jesus trusted Judas with the money back. He was the, he was the ministry group's treasurer, right? Entrusted by Jesus, along with all the 12 apostles, I guess it would be 11, he's the 12, one of the 12, all the other 11 apostles with the funds for the ministry of Jesus. Church, Jesus washed his feet hours before this moment of betrayal. I mean, can you believe that? Moments before the hour of this betrayal, he washed Judas's feet along with the other disciples as an example to all 12 of them of how the followers of Jesus are to be servants. That's, that's earth-shattering, crazy, but happened. That's what is... That's the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. Church, this was not a surface relationship. This was not two ships passing in the night type of interaction. Not an acquaintance or or friendly neighbor that you wave to as you go by and they wave as they go their way. Or even the one that you would share maybe occasional surface conversations, conversations with nor even a a co-worker or business associate associate you interact with, but only on the level of business or regular transactions. No. It is not this at all. This was a relationship established over years where trust has been given. There's closeness here. They bunked together, right? Right? There's closeness here. Time has been invested. Memories have been made. Experiences have been shared with one another. There is, there is a history filled with details of their lives interwoven together. Jesus, Judas, excuse me, Judas betrays Jesus to his face. To his face. And not only to his face, but with a gesture of what that would have been familiar amongst this group, right? Of friendship, relationship, endearment. While all, while all along his heart was inclined to harm him for personal gain. My friend, betrayal here, this type of betrayal, hurts It hurts with a hurt other betrayals can't even touch. Those who have experienced this know exactly what I'm talking about. It strikes the inner man to the core. It causes you to to bleed profusely within to the point the lack of blood, figuratively speaking, causes you to be weak. Not sure if you can go on. Betrayal of this nature is one of the worst pains the inner man can experience. It's the type of betrayal David laments over in Psalm 55. 
Listen to this. He says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I can bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my companion, my equal, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Do you hear the unbearable pain expressed in David's words? He knows this type of betrayal. Betrayal that wounds deep, deep. Wounds that that can be healed over time through repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation to the praise and the glory of God because of the gospel. Yes and amen. But nevertheless, are there wounds that leave a mark? That bear scars. That's why if you've been betrayed in this matter, and if you ever asked that question, if you've been betrayed this way, it's not a thought that one needs to put forth effort to muster up. Like, I gotta think about this. No! Boom! It's instantly there. Instantly there. Forgiveness given, yes. Complete healing has taken place. There are tender scars that remain. Tender scars, scars that are sensitive to any hint of the elements of betrayal lurking about. I want, you under, I want you to understand this, church. This hurt. Jesus, Jesus was not emotionally immune to the hurt of betrayal despite knowing it was coming. And I think we could do that, right? We can just think, he just wasn't hit that way. He knew it was coming. Wrong. It hurt. It hurt him. He's not immune to it. He wasn't immune to it. He wasn't then, and he isn't now. He knows the pain. He knows that pain, and he can sympathize. Okay? I find that so comforting. Right? If you've been betrayed that way or in any way, he knows the sting of that. He can sympathize that. That is our high priest. That is our God. He's not removed from those experiences. He's walked the walk in every way to the fullest measure. He knows that sting. He can sympathize with us when we are betrayed. And it still hurts his heart. It still hurts his heart when we sin against him in this manner. Sadly, we do, right? He's he's entrusted us We are entrusted by him, same as his disciples back then, with treasures that belong to him. He entrusts us to steward well the gift of of family, our home, our jobs, the gift of, of an education. You know, you're not a brilliant intellect just because you drank a... I don't, know, I don't know where I'm going there, but that just doesn't happen. That's a gift from God. And the material, the material you, you have to study and learn, to expand that intellect, to grow it so that it matures, you didn't write those books. Someone else who's given the knowledge wrote them for you to learn, right? The gift of an education, treasures, our physical bodies, the church. I mean, his, his planet we live on and its resources we harness. These are all his. He's entrusted all of them to us. All of it. But listen carefully. Far above all of that, he entrusts his people, namely with the gospel. Namely with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.17, Galatians 2.7, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, 1 Timothy 1.11, 6 and 6.20, 2 Timothy 1, verses 12 and 14, Titus 1.3. I don't expect you to write those down. They'll be on the notes. But all of these verses, and likely more, all of them tell us that we have been entrusted with 
the gospel. Entrusted with the gospel, the message and the making of God's new creations in Christ. We've been entrusted with the message, you know, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, whom, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been entrusted with that message. This, that Jesus accomplished this by dying on the cross. We have been entrusted to share the good news of how, of how sinners like us, sinners like us can be reconciled to a holy God, a God where the, the archangels veil their eyes and the other ones bow, right? We can be reconciled to be with him. That's the gospel. That is what Jesus has accomplished. And to, to orient our lives, you know, the making, to orient our lives around it, around the gospel, so that it's, that it's, it's, it's remaking of us, because that's what it's doing, right? It's transforming us. That's the sanctification. That is the power of God in us, the fruit of the Spirit coming out as we seek after God by following Christ. It is that remaking of us from the inside out that's put on display, we are entrusted to put that on display by the grace of God in all humility and meekness, a message and a making. And though his, his love for us is secure, praise God, it's secure by his atoning work, his heart still hurts every time we allow the sin of deceit to corrupt, to quench, or mar the work of the gospel in us. It it stings, same as it stings you when betrayed. Be known as one who is faithful. Be known as one who is faithful that the Christian should be known by a number of character traits. One of the most noteworthy is being found faithful. Child and adult alike. You know, don't, just don't permit any thread of betrayal to exist within your home. Whether it's between spouses or between siblings or, or child to parent, parent to child, do not permit betrayal to even be in proximity to that. Pursue honesty. Pursue faithfulness and trustworthiness. These virtues, these virtues, they yield peace, love, and joy in these relationships. And they will have the same effects on all, on all other forms of relationships outside the home. Be known as one who is faithful. And, like our Lord, when you meet betrayal, when that happens, when you meet betrayal, right in line with faithfulness, uphold holy conduct. Uphold holy conduct in the face of betrayal as demonstrated by our Lord in verses 47 through 50, which is our second morsel to sink our teeth into. Uphold holy conduct in the face of betrayal. Because that's the kicker, right? That's the kicker. By one betrayed, <laughs> You, you just feel justified to go unleashed back at the betrayer. I mean, you're, you are the innocent one. How dare they do that? I am justified to be angry right now. I've been the loyal spouse. I've been faithful. I'm the, I'm the parent who makes sacrifices 
who, entrust, who trusted my child with this privilege, this valuable thing, and I was deceived. It was squandered. I was lied to. I am the victim. Boy, if there ever is a platform to feel justified to retaliate, this is it. This is it. Let's see what takes place in verses 47 through 49. But one of those who stood by drew his, excuse me, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. (laughs) There it is, right? (laughs) Right from the gate. One of the disciples responds how any of us would respond in this position. Retaliate, free to unleash on them. This disciple The Gospel of John informs us that it is Peter, okay? The disciple Peter, perhaps still groggy-eyed from being recently woken, right? This is just moments happening here. Jesus just wakes him. Behold, my betrayer's hand. He whips out a sword. Explodes in retaliation mode with intent, I believe, to kill. He was intended to kill. I persuaded that he wasn't targeting the ear. This wasn't some Zorro warning strike, right? How dare he off his ear? He was going for a lethal blow. He was trying to kill him. But by the grace of God, only the ear of the high priest's servant was cut off. So let's, let's contrast that now to how Jesus responds. Peter portrays well me, us. Let's see what Jesus would do. Jesus, remember, remember, he's just freshly, deeply wounded in the heart by the betrayal of Judas, who comes to him, betrays him to his face with a kiss. Jesus, Jesus directs his attention to the soldiers, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And I I ponder what the look upon Jesus' eyes were when he said to them, have you come out against a robber with, with swords and clubs to capture me? I imagine sadness. I see his eyes sad with even communicating through them this, this appeal to their heart. Like, like this, is, this is quite the production to seize to seize one, you know, verse 49, day after day, I was, I was with you. I was with you, Jesus says. I'm not a stranger to you. Day after day, I was with you in the temple. I was teaching you. And you didn't seize me then. I hear this as being spoken in line with Proverbs sixteen twenty three. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Jesus' words here are gentle and judicious. (laughs) Gentle and judicious. His actions were in accordance to the word of God. It's remarkable that the composure of Jesus, the composure of Jesus, the self-control, his inner man hurting severely, yet he remains self-controlled, holy in his conduct, and ultimately submissive to the Father's will. You know, that which, that which he sweat drops of blood agonizing over in prayer, to the Father, with whom all things are possible, to remove this cup from him. 
his inner man in anguish over this over the suffering that awaited him to atone for the sins of the of his people. Yet, not what I will, says Jesus. You know, not not my will, but what you will. The end of verse forty nine. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus obeyed. Jesus upheld holy conduct, submitting to the Father's will as an example to us. Even in the face of such inner torment, he remained faithful to the Father, obeying every word, upholding holy conduct in the face of betrayal. And then this, 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 this strike against Christ's inner man is compounded. <laughs> it's compounded, and the rest, in that, the rest of his closest followers desert him. They desert him. I believe it. You know, they, they deserted him in watching and praying, Right? They, they did that earlier when Jesus, in agony, you know, his soul is sorrowful, even unto death. Let that hang there for a bit. Like, I don't think that's just decorating the, the, the text. That's exactly what Jesus was feeling. They abandoned him. They didn't support him. He's asking them to watch and pray with him prior to this betrayal. And now they compound they compound the very betrayal by adding their own portion to it, their own portion of the betrayal to it by deserting him physically. They did so in prayer and now physically. They just flee. They run away. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. But wait, we are given a peculiar verse to treasure that informs us that someone did follow. Someone didn't flee immediately. He did follow, at least for a while. Verses 51 and 52, our final morsel to bite into this morning. Budding marks of one seeking after God by following Christ. Let's look at these two final verses together, shall we? Verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> I mean, odd insert, right? That's just an odd. My wife read it this morning. She just laughed as she comes across. She asks, where are we, where are we studying what passages? And then she chuckles a few minutes later. It's just an odd insert. It's another passage of Scripture where perhaps you found yourself saying, like me many times, you know, like, that's in the Bible. <laughs> what I just read is in the Bible. Dear friend, the Bible is the most honest book there is. It is the most honest book there is. It doesn't paint flowery pictures of events. No, far from it. It states it how it is. It does not omit ugly details of what took place. It's brutally honest. And that, therefore, ought to serve as a marker of its authenticity. You know, the, the Bible has fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. No other book has that, like the Bible. Additionally, there are tremendous proportions of historical validity of the Bible. You have the, the miraculous preservation of the Bible. You have generation after generation of the powerful testifying effects of it upon the souls of man, same as us, 
You know, we have the the unified storyline pointing to Christ from Genesis to Revelations. Unified storyline pointing to Christ written through men, various men, many men of old, carried along by the Holy Spirit over the span of thousands of years. We're seeing our history for the country being rewritten in, what, decades, 100 years? Thousands of years, one unified story pointing to Christ. Along with these markers, amongst others of its authenticity, you have its raw honesty, such as these final two verses that close our passage. And, and Mark, Mark ensured that this particular witness, right, because this is a witness, This is a witness of these events, this particular witness to this historical account of Jesus, of his arrest, his betrayal, was to be be preserved in Scripture. And he tells it how it is. This is exactly what happened. It's not a flattering scene. One thing I find peculiar about this recording is that when all the other disciples fled, he's the one that, that stayed and followed. He followed this young man wearing nothing but a, a linen cloth. And I, I'd like to learn the story behind that. Why that is, I don't know. Maybe he, <laughs> right. Just a linen cloth. But he followed, not one of the other 12. Peter came later to the courtyard. But in that moment, boom, they flee. Right? They're gone. But this, this young man followed. Now this account, no other Gospels mention this account. Mark's the only one. Therefore, most commentators understand this individual here is actually John Mark, the writer of this gospel account. One who, John Mark, one who later became a close attendant and writer for Peter. Okay? Recording all he could remember from what Peter passed down to him when he was composing this this gospel account, the gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So So some considerations of this passage in closing, as I was thinking about it in preparation for this sermon, taking it as face value, Understanding this this person here to be the writer of the Gospel of Mark, to be John Mark, some considerations. So we know that that he was a young man, okay? Young man at this time, verse 51 makes that clear. He was, uh, there was at least at this point for Mark, there was at least at this point for John Mark an interest in Jesus. He's there. He's seeking after him. He's here on the night of his betrayal. An eyewitness of this account. He remained and followed with all the other, or excuse me, when all the other disciples ran away. He, uh, he didn't seem to have much, okay? Perhaps he was quite poor. Maybe that was why. Or maybe it was the middle of the night. He woke up, woke into this massive band of soldiers and chief priests going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe he just got woken up like, what is going on? And he's been around following Jesus, saw the triumphal entry. Maybe he just got out of bed. I don't know. I don't know. But we do know he followed close enough. He followed, followed close enough that it put him in danger, right? They seized him. He was away on the outskirts. Like, they got a hold of him. He was close enough, but he was put in danger. And he narrowly escaped, but it came at a great cost. Cost him his entire garment, the only garment he had, leaving him buck naked as he fled through the forest. And who knows how difficult that would have been for him to find clothing again. Awkward much. It was the middle of the night. Not necessarily an easy fix. Or, or maybe that was helpful because it was dark. I mean, he was able to not be seen much, but either way, super awkward. An awkward 
You could even say terrifying moment. I think he was terrified for his life to go to that measure. Terrifying moment for this young man. And though, and though John Mark omits his name, perhaps out of modesty, which I get, you know, he's sure to include it, though, right? He includes it in the account of it in composing this gospel. He, he's make, he makes sure that it's there. So I, I offer a few considerations as to why. Seeking after God by following Jesus means being vulnerable. It means being vulnerable. You know, getting close. This guy, this, this young man, was in a vulnerable situation. And it usually brings a risk. Also, seeking after God by following Jesus has risk, you know, it puts you in danger. It, it can put you in danger. And seeking after God by following Jesus means being stripped. There's a great cost to it. All, however, are commendable in the sight of God who looks upon the inner man. All formative in growing the inner man to be whom God is calling you to be. Church, listen, it's, it's not by chance that John Mark wrote, listen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this gospel account, which is recognized as the very word of God. That's not coincidence. That's God ordained that John Mark would write this gospel as a part of the the canon, scripture, the word of God, the life-giving, soul-changing, gospel-heriting message of truth. The kingdom of God in which Christ sits enthroned is being built upon by the working of his word and the power of the Spirit. And John Mark is credited as one of the divinely inspired authors of Scripture. That's a weighty truth to consider. It's not bad for a young man running naked as a jaybird through the moonlit night. Okay? I mean, we're talking awkward beginnings and mature ends. Awkward beginnings and mature ends. A good example to all of us. I heard recently this last week that Christians are like God's teenagers, and how true that is, right? A good example to all of us who are seeking after God by following Christ. But chiefly, I'd say, once again, the young men here at Pillar. Yeah, I know, attention is on you again. But, but you like it, right? You like it. And foremost, look at the text. You know, I'm not venturing out or pulling on hair strings to strike this chord. Look at verse 51. It's where God has us right now. And a young man followed him. So similar to, to this blip on Mark, it's an awkward time of life for a young man. You know, just straight up, it is. I mean, your, your, uh, your voice shift is audible evidence of that, Right? Totally. I couldn't wait for that to be over when I was your age. Claiming that I had a sore throat for I don't know how many consecutive months, okay? There's got to be a reason. It's just a sore throat. It'll pass. You know, it's a time you're figuring a lot of things out. Your, your clothing style, your music style, your hairstyle for that matter. Complicated by the fact that, that facial hair begins popping up but in patches of varying thickness. The awkwardness of that feature for some goes well into their adulthood. That's why I don't sport a full, full beard, okay? I'm still patchy. There can be a lot of awkwardness. There's a lot of changing taking place. But it's also, it's also a prime opportunity to have its awkward beginnings include a heartfelt seeking after God by following Christ. That it would lead to mature ends. 
as we see here with Mark's example. Being willing to, being willing to be vulnerable, vulnerable to draw close to Jesus, you know, opening your heart to him in prayer, to share your struggles, share your doubts, bring your questions to him. And not only to him, but to those who love and follow Jesus along with you. Invite your dad into those conversations. Along with your mom. You know, allow that vulnerable space to exist. Your parents can handle any topic. I know Satan says otherwise, but it's not true. It's a lie. They can handle any topic. Be vulnerable. Share these conversations with your pastor even or with other young Christian believers who are likewise seeking after God and and share the questions, share the struggles as you follow Jesus together. In the face of, of risk, do not be deterred by the danger that it may place you in. Yeah, you're going to be disliked if you're known as a, as a Bible thumper. You maybe have heard that term, right? You're going to feel that cold shoulder. You're going to be considered out, which you ought to be. You're in this real world, but you're not of it if you're in Christ. That's a good distinction. Not one that you hold with arrogance, one that you hold with humility and praise to God. That danger is there. The world hates Jesus, and it will hate you who seek to follow in his footsteps. Mark that danger as real and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as you courageously continue the worthwhile risk of following him, which comes with great cost. It does. Count the cost. It comes with great cost. But resolve in your heart, right? Resolve in your heart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, we, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out when we leave, when we die. Whatever cost there is in this life in seeking after God by following Jesus Christ, be in, be in, be content. So long as when you, so long as that you that you return home, that when you return home, that you are with Him when that day comes. Have these have these awkward beginnings include teenagers. Please include a heartfelt seeking after God by following Jesus. Pursue him. That it would lead to mature Christ-like ends. I conclude, church, uh, this morning with once again saying, betrayal hurts, Betrayal hurts, it does. And and the closer a person is to you, the more painful that violation of trust is. Whether it's it's caused by deceit, by lies, or or the squandering of something entrusted, it hurts. And it takes time to heal. If we're um if we are the guilty party. If we are the guilty party convicted of that sin who has, who has confessed it and sought forgiveness, understand that, that though forgiveness is extended, though reconciliation has taken place, there's a process to the healing. There's a process to the healing. It's, it's not like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusades, okay? Where he takes the, where Indy pours the water from the Holy Grail over the, over his dad's bullet wound. And it fizzes up like hydrogen peroxide on scratch and then washes away and you have this baby, clean skin, completely healed, all washed away. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. As much as, as much as we would like it to pass quickly, because it hurts to know that you've hurt someone close to you. 
It hurts to know you've hurt anyone, but especially one close to you. Your spouse, your child, your parent, your brother in Christ, the pain of sin inflicted upon one another doesn't wash off like the water from the Holy Grail washed off a mortal flesh wound. That's not real. The reconciliation is real. The, the cleansing of all unrighteousness by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ through whom we may have forgiveness of sins, that is real. That is all real. To the praise of God, that's real and forever because of the gospel. But the dagger wounds, the dagger wounds made with our harsh words or actions, they penetrate deep. You know, allow time, allow time to heal and apply, apply that the balm of pursuing more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And if we are the one betrayed, if it is you who has been betrayed, think upon how, how Jesus responded when the one, the Holy One, Jesus, when he who is faithful was betrayed and sentenced to death. Think upon him who, who upheld holy conduct in the face of betrayal. In his strength, by his example, be faithful to, to reflect that same character trait as one who seeks after God by following Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, First, God, I just want to thank you. Thank you that, that you are not a God who is removed from the, the pains of this life. There is not one element of it where you, Jesus, who came from heaven, eternal God, Jesus, who, who left your throne to put upon flesh, to be Emmanuel to walk among us, to show us the Father in every way, tempted in every way, suffered and far beyond what we ourselves will suffer. You did it to the max. And you can sympathize. You are a God who can sympathize. You are not who removed. You entered the suffering. You experienced it to the full, and you are present in it when it is present in our lives. You are there in the suffering in a very comforting, real, loving way. And I thank you that you are such a God. You are not blind. You are not deaf. You are not mute. God, you speak, you see, you hear, you walk among us. You are alive. Thank you for being such a God. Thank you for being able to sympathize with our hurts and for being a God who forgives, who's made a way of forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross where Jesus bore our sin. Well, we can know without a shadow of a doubt, we can have assurance of forgiveness that we are forgiven. Any sin, sin that's been convicted and repented, and God, even those sins that we are so blind to because of sin, not to presume upon that, but God, there is, your grace has no measure. And so we thank you that we can have forgiveness as we pursue holiness in the fear of God. God, even as the psalmist writes, give us such a heart where we can pray to you to test our hearts, to test our minds, to see if there's any wayward way within us, to pray such a prayer with, with trembling and rejoicing, 
trembling because we know there is sin that exists, but rejoicing to know that by your love, exposing it, we can be nailed to the cross. We can be removed from our life and we can enter into closer, closer relationship with you. For that is what we desire, God. We desire to be in your home, in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty. Thank you, God, that we can be forgiven because we are guilty of betraying. And help us, Father, in the face of being sinned against, whether a violation of trust or or some form of sin bringing damage to our lives, hurt to our lives. Help us uphold holy conduct. Same as you did, Lord Jesus, your example, submitting to the Father's will, obeying the word of God, living it out. In those vulnerable times where we feel justified to not, to be angry, to, to have vengeance, to retaliate, God, help us to be faithful to your word, to remain obedient to it in all self-control and humility. And God, lastly, as ones seeking after God by following you, Lord Jesus Christ, please fill us with more of you, more of the Spirit of Christ, that there would be this transcendent glory emanating from within our lives to testify along with our words, that it marries up, our lives and our words marry up of the gospel message at work in us that we so desire to see shared amongst others, God. We have a heart to see people come to you, to surrender their lives, to joyfully come under your, your rule and reign. And at a time where fear is rampant, God, help us shine in such a way clothed in humility, rejoicing in our God, filled with hope, not holding on to this life, but cherishing the one that we have secure by faith in Jesus Christ who purchased it for us on the cross. Bless your church in such a way. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.